it is great to have you here for the Appleseed. A special live experience with the great storyteller Bill Lepp, a longtime friend of the Appleseed, deserves your very warmest, ladies and gentlemen. Bill Lepp. Bill is in Utah from his home in West Virginia, and to give you just a taste of what you're going to get for the rest of the evening, ladies and gentlemen, let's bring him to the microphone, Bill Lepp. Once, there was a prince. He was a mountain prince. He lived on a farm on a grange, which is an old word for farm, and the only reason I use it is because it rhymes with range. So he lived on a grange on a mountain range. And this particular mountain prince wanted to get married. He wanted to marry a princess, but he didn't want to marry any old princess. He wanted to marry a mountain princess. And the problem was there weren't any mountain princesses in the general vicinity. So he said to his mama, he said, Mama, I'm going to go out in all the world. He lives with his mama in this scenario, which I think explains a few things. <laughs> But he said to his mama, he said, Mom, I'm going to go out into the world. I'm going to go to all the mountain ranges in all the world, see if I can't find me a real mountain princess. So he set out, and he hiked the Himalayas, and he cruised the Caucasus. He ascended the Alps and the Appalachians. He roamed through the Rockies. He went to the Sierras <laughs> to see if there are any ladies with tiaras. And then he went to Glass Mountain to see if anybody had one shoe. Uh, <laughs> But he couldn't find any real mountain princesses. Now, he met a couple ladies who said they were princesses, but he wasn't sure if they were really princesses, because let's face it, princess costumes just aren't that expensive. Uh, so he went home, and he said to his mama, he said, Mama, I couldn't find me no real mountain princess. He said, I met a couple ladies who said they were princesses, but I think they might have been frauds. He said, now I kissed some of those frauds. <laughs> to see if they would turn into princesses. And his mama said, don't kiss frauds, you'll get warts. And so that night there was a terrible storm. There was thunder and lightning and a hurricane and an earthquake and a tsunami and all manner of whatnot. And in the midst of that, there was a knock at the front door. And because this is a story, when the prince opened the door, there standing on the stoop was three beautiful prim prime princesses. And he was so excited until they said, trick or treat, and then he was like, aw, shucks. But the next morning, he was doing some work in the field, and it was a beautiful day, and he saw a woman coming down the road, and she was wearing hiking boots and a calico dress, and her hair was a mess, and she said, howdy, I'm a real mountain princess. Well, he didn't know if she was a real princess or not, because he didn't know if real princesses wore hiking boots and calico dresses with their hair in a mess, but she did have a sash that said Mountain Princess. So he thought, maybe. And uh, he took her home to his mama. He said, Mama, this here lady says she's a real Mountain Princess. Well, the mama wasn't sure either. So she took the son to the side, and she said, Listen, I don't know if she's a real princess. We're going to have to test her. This is what I want you to do. She said, I want you to take 20 mattresses, and I want you to pile them up on the back of your pickup truck. <laughs> And when it comes time for bed, we'll have her sleep on top of them mattresses. And if she don't notice that she's sleeping on a pickup truck, we'll know that she's a real mountain princess. And the son said, okay, mom, we're brainstorming, so no bad ideas. But a couple of things. One, we ain't got 20 mattresses. He said, we got three mattresses, an air mattress, and one of them blow-up raft things. And the mama said, use what you got. <laughs> 
And then he said, how is she not going to notice the pickup truck? He said, I bought that pickup truck specifically so princesses would notice me. And the mama said, how's that working for you? But she thought about it, and then she said, dust ruffle. And so that night when it came time for bed... The prince said, oh, it's time for bed. Let me show you where you'll be sleeping. And so he took the princess out the front door, across the driveway. He said, it's up this ladder, top of that pile of mattresses. Nothing weird about that. And so the princess climbed up, and when she was good and asleep, the mama gave the keys to the truck to the son, and that is not a sentence you want to try and diagram. And she said... I want you to take this truck, start the truck, and you drive. And you drive uphill, and you drive downhill. And you go on windy roads, and you go on bumpy roads. And if she don't notice that she's sleeping on a pickup truck, we'll know that she's a real mountain princess. And the son said, okay, Mama, just one problem with that. He said, if I go on a bumpy road, she's going to, ah, like that. And I don't want to marry a roadkill princess. Now, I feel like I should pause here for just a moment to tell you that in the great state of West Virginia, from where I hail, uh, our state legislature, uh, maybe a decade ago, decided that it would be a perfectly reasonable thing to make eating roadkill legal. And (laughs) as a result of that, the culinary event of the year in West Virginia is in Marlinton. It is the roadkill (laughs) cook-off. And as part of those festivities, there's a beauty contest, and some lucky young woman gets named Miss Roadkill. But that's only my second favorite beauty contest in West Virginia. In Bridgeport, West Virginia, they have the Benetum Oil and Gas Festival, and some even luckier young lady gets named Miss Oil and Gas. So... The son said, if I hit a bump, she's gonna... And the mama said, clamp it! It's the best Beverly Hillbilly joke you're going to get. And she took a big ribbon and she tied the princess to the back of the pickup truck. And the son got in the truck and he drove uphill and he drove downhill and he went on windy roads and he went on bumpy roads. Uh, And this is a children's story, so there are obligatory puns and here they come. He put it in four-wheel drive so that he could ford a stream. And then he had to dodge a ram. And then he drove across the tundra. And then he got drowsy. And drowsy driving is dangerous driving, so he headed home and he parked the truck and the princess was still snoring in a very unprincess-like manner. And the prince went in and he went to sleep. And in the morning, he and his mom were eating breakfast and the princess came in and she said, morning, how'd y'all sleep? And they, she, they said, we slept great, which was a lie because they didn't have any mattresses. <laughs> But they said, how did you sleep? And she said, best night of sleep I ever had in my whole life. Dreamt I was riding on a bucking bronco all night long. And then they knew that she was a real mountain princess. And the prince and the princess got married. And they lived happily ever after. Sometimes in two-wheel drive. Sometimes in four-wheel drive. But they always managed to thrive. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Lepp. And that's the kind of night it's going to be. We want to invite to the bass here Mr. Ian Camp and to the piano Mr. Anthony Fan. Guys, come on up to the... <laughs> I come from a musical family, and uh, I lived 300 miles away from my nearest brother for a little while. And one night, late at night, there was a knock on my door. I answered the door. It was that brother, and he was standing there in the dark on my porch, and he handed me a guitar, and he said, 
everybody in the family knows how to play the guitar except you. And frankly, we're sick and tired of it. <laughs> so here you go. Get to work. Uh, I'm not playing the guitar tonight. And that's maybe another story. But uh, the <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Yeah, <laughs> but one of the very first numbers that my brother and I ever did together after that time, we came to have a love of making music together. One of the very first pieces we did together was this great old tune called All God's Children Got Rhythm. It's from an old Marx Brothers movie called A Day at the Races. It was performed in that film by the great Ivy Anderson, and she performed along with Whitey's Lindy Hoppers, a group of Lindy Hop dancers who would just take your breath away. They performed from the 20s all the way to 1942 when all the men in that group were drafted and went to World War II. It brought about the end of Whitey's Lindy Hoppers, but they did this tune. Here we go. Children got rhythm. All God's children got that swing. Well, maybe they haven't got money. Maybe they haven't got shoes. But all God's children got rhythm. Just to chase away the blues. I said, All God's children got that trouble. to an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
Welcome back for more stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. Here's your host, Sam Payne. Before the break, you heard just a little bit of music, you heard just a little bit of Bill Lepp, and there's a lot more of that coming up. Ladies and gentlemen, let's bring him back to the microphone, all the way from West Virginia, a longtime friend of The Appleseed, Bill Lepp. Thank you. I, I grew up in a little town called Half Dollar, West Virginia. And uh, when I say little town, we had two streets. One was called Main Street. And the other one, I'm pretty sure, was called, Nah, that ain't Main Street. <laughs> and we had sort of your variety pack of Baptist churches and then a Methodist church. And our parents told us that there were some Catholics that lived over the hill. But we didn't know if that was true or... <laughs> That was just something they told us so we'd go to bed at night. <laughs> but my buddy Skeeter and I loved the half-dollar Baptist church. Now, when I say we love the Baptist church, I mean Baptist with a little b, because we were Methodists. What we loved <clears throat> was the building that was the Baptist church, because the attic was infested with bats. And on a spring evening, a summer evening, a fall evening, you could go and sit behind the church and just watch thousands and thousands of bats flying out of the eaves, flying out of the steeples. It was a beautiful sight to see. So Skeeter and I were very excited when it was announced that because they were doing renovations at the Methodist Church that we would be having a joint vacation Bible school at the Baptist Church. And we were excited for several reasons. One, we had lots of Baptist friends, but it was difficult to tell the Baptist children from the Methodist children on the playground because we all knew the same bad words. <laughs> So we were excited to have the opportunity to see the Baptist children being Baptist in their natural Baptist habitat. <laughs> On top of that, we had never been in the Baptist church, but we understood that in the Baptist church they had a baptismal, like a big bathtub where they did the baptisms. Now when you're a Methodist, when you get baptized, it, you usually get baptized as an infant and you just get a little bit of water sprinkled on your head. But the Baptists get the full board Duncan. And I asked my dad why that was, and he said that's because Methodists just have dirty minds <laughs> but the, the baptists are dirty all over and then again in the methodist church you generally get in, uh, baptized as an infant there's no rebaptism in the in the methodist church but we understood that there were baptists who got baptized like once a week so we were excited to have the opportunity to see that so we got to the baptist church on the first day and the little old ladies that were running the vacation bible school put the girls on one put the girls on this side of the sanctuary and the boys on this side of the sanctuary and we sang some hymns and there was a devotional and then it came time to give the offering but instead of <clears throat> passing the plates in the traditional fashion what happened was the boys got against this wall the girls got against this wall and we progressed forward and someone had built in front of the altar an offering giving device the likes of which i had never seen before and i have never seen since it was a two by four standing upright about three feet tall and bolted loosely perpendicularly across the top of that was another two by four and on this side, tied on by binders twine, was a coffee can painted pink. And on this side, tied on by binders twine, was a coffee can painted blue. And the boys put their money in the blue can, and the girls put their money in the pink can, and whichever side went down, that gender won the offering. Yeah, that should make you a little uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> 
there's a lot wrong with that. And it's not even all theological. I mean, part of the problem is that the weight of American money has very little to do with the value of American money. A nickel is twice the size of a dime, but it's only worth half as much. And 10 pennies weighs more than a $100 bill. Now, my buddy Skeeter and I knew that firsthand because that winter there'd been a blizzard and we decided to go out and shovel some snow to make a little extra money. Now, I am the last of five children, which means I did not own a new article of clothing until I was 27 years old. And the worst part about that was that my two closest siblings were my sisters. So I would say to my mother, I don't want to wear a girl's pants, I don't want to wear a girl's shirt. And my mother would say, there's no such thing as girl's pants, there's no such thing as a girl's shirt. And I would say, then how come my shirt sticks out right here? And she would say, be quiet, there are children in Biafra. And so I was born after the inventions of rubber and wool, but before the inventions of Thinsulate and Gore-Tex. My winter boots were essentially thin rubber rain boots with metal clasps so that you could tighten them, and they were one size fits all, which means my oldest brother. So by the time they got to me, they had four siblings where the holes worn through the soles and burned through the uppers. So to render them winterproof, my mother would sit me down, put two wool socks on each foot, and then she would take space age, state of the art, Arctic raided, Wonder Bread bags. <laughs> she had put two Wonder Bread bags on each foot, then take a rubber band, work it up my thigh or up my calf, and slap it shut, so that within 15 minutes, my feet were numb. And I didn't know if it was frostbite or lack of circulation. But because my boots were too big for me and my feet were encased in plastic, walking was quite a process because I would lift my foot, but it would take two or three seconds for my foot to fully engage the boot. And then I would lift the boot, put it back on the ground, and then it would take another two or three seconds for my foot to fully re-engage the boot. So thusly clad, Skeeter and I headed out. Now again, this was the 1970s, and I was what my buddy Andy calls the last of the bicycle generation, which means that shortly after breakfast on a summer day or a Saturday, your parents would say to you, go away. <laughs> and you could go anywhere in the world on your bicycle so long as you were home for supper. Uh, if you wanted to go shoot pool in a smoky blues hall in Las Vegas, Nobody cared, long as you were home for supper. So my mother would say, go away, and I'd be like, okay, but can I have a box of matches and a stick of dynamite? And she would say, be careful. Remember what happened to Dan Carlisle. So my mother was like, goodbye, boys, go. Knock on strangers' doors. If they invite you in, by all means, enter their houses. If they offer you food and drink, say please and thank you. See you when you get home or not. <laughs> You're the last of five. It might take a while for us to notice. So we headed out. And this went immediately from not just an exercise and occupation, but also sort of a sociology experiment, because we would knock on a door. And if the man of the house opened the door, we would say, can we shovel your driveway? And he would say, how much? And we would say, five bucks. And he would say, have at it. But if the woman of the house opened the door, we would say, can we shovel your driveway? And she would say, oh, no, my husband is going to do that. <laughs> And she would shut the door and we would walk away. And we'd get about 30 seconds down the road and the door would open and there would be the man of the house saying, boys, 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 come back, come back. 
So we learned that if the woman shut the door, we would just stay on the stoop. And 30 seconds later, the door would open and there would be the man of the house. But he wouldn't see us because we were only this tall. And he was looking down the street. And when he couldn't locate us, we would learn a new word. And then we would make some sort of movement and that would startle him. And we would learn another new word. So by the end of the day, we each probably had $25, $30 cash money in our pockets. And the last house we did was a little old lady. And when we were done, she invited us in and she gave us cookies and cocoa. And then she paid us each $5, but she paid us in pennies. And we had to sit there and count out 500 pennies apiece. And the only vessel I had large enough to carry 500 pennies was a Wonder Bread bag. <laughs> And in case you're curious, about a third of a mile is how far you can get with 500 pennies in a Wonder Bread bag before the Wonder Bread bag just gives up. So, all of that to say, Skeeter and I were well aware that the weight of American money has very little to do with the value of American money. So back to the Vacation Bible School. What Skeeter and I wanted to do most was to get in the baptismal. And I don't know why, except that we were seven, and it seemed like the right thing to do. <laughs> so anytime the sanctuary was empty, anytime we could sneak away from class, we would go, and first we would just look. I don't know what we thought we'd see. I guess we thought we'd see Baptist sin, just sort of swimming around. <laughs> like evil coy, like, oh, there goes greed, there goes avarice. And then... We'd be just about to get in, and the Baptist pastor would materialize behind us. Now, he was this gruff old guy. I say he was old, but now I realize he was probably 30. And <laughs> we didn't go to that church, but it was a small town, so, you know, we knew who he was. And he had this wonderful attitude. He really didn't care whether or not you agreed with him because he knew that he was right <laughs> and that you would either one day come to see things his way or you would, you know, suffer... <laughs> in the fires forever <laughs> and he really didn't care which way you went because you know he just knew he was right and so we would be just about to get in the baptismal and he would appear behind us and he would say boys 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 i know you want to get in there but that's not a toy and when a man does things purely for his own enjoyment and not for the benefit of others or the glory of god he will be stained and tainted that others may know yeah. We thought that was good stuff. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't make us not want to get in the baptismal, but there was no denying it was good stuff. And that pastor hated the way we were doing the, the offering, but any pastor worth his or her salt knows that there's only so many battles you can win. And taking on the little old ladies that run the vacation Bible school is not a wise career move. <laughs> So he wouldn't tell them to quit doing the offering that way. But by Thursday, he couldn't stand it anymore. And when it came time for the devotional, he got up to do the devotional, and he didn't read a plithy little poem. No, he got up in the pulpit, and he gave a full-bore sermon. And he started by telling us the story of where Jesus is in the temple with the disciples, and they're watching the people give the offering, and the rich guys are throwing in tons and tons of cash, and then the little old lady comes up, and she puts in her two mites or her two pennies, and Jesus turns to the disciples, and he says to the disciples who gave the greatest offering. And one of the disciples, probably like Mark, he's like, hey, he's talking, give me the red pencil. And then... 
Jesus says, who gave the greater offering? And then one of the disciples give one of those answers that make me think that the reason Jesus chose those 12 guys is because he knew that they were morons. <laughs> and before you get self-righteous or offended, he knew that they were morons, and he could ask them things that you and I needed to know the answer to, and they would say the first thing that popped into their head, and then Jesus could explain the correct answer, and you and I would know the correct answer without ever having to open our mouths. He was already looking out for you. So... Jesus said, who gave the greater offering? And one of the disciples said, clearly the rich men gave the greater offering. And Jesus said, no, the rich men gave from their abundance while the little old lady gave from her poverty. And then Jesus, or the pastor explains that what that means is when you give an offering, you're supposed to put yourself in a place where you become dependent upon God. The word abundance means more than you need. So if you're giving out of your abundance, you, you haven't really given anything at all, but the little old lady gave everything she had. Therefore, she became completely completely dependent upon God, thus she had given the greater offering. Now, just parenthetically, two things. One, that is in no way a prosperity verse. And two, on behalf of any church treasurers listening, uh, if you are giving out of your abundance, don't quit. Uh, <laughs> it's not doing you any good, but the rest of us are benefiting. So, he, he said that the rich men gave from their perfidy. We didn't know what it meant either. But it seemed like a weird place to keep your money. And then he told us that if we continued to give in this perfidious way, that the demons of hell would descend upon us, snatch our souls, and drag them down to the sulfuric pits. And we were like, yeah! Right? Because we were Methodists, and Methodists... We don't have demons of hell. We have covered dish dinners. So we were moved. But again, not in the direction that the pastor had intended. It just caused Skeeter and I to remember the 1,000 pennies the little old lady had given us earlier that year. So we went home that night, and we collected every penny in both of our houses. And we didn't put them in a Wonder Bread bag either. We got an old wool hunting sock. We probably had five inches in diameter, maybe 18 inches of pennies. And I'm talking pre-1983 pennies, 174 pennies to the pound. And the next morning, when we went to church, when we got to church, Skeeter held those pennies behind his back. You're probably familiar with the idea that even the observation of an experiment can change the outcome of the experiment. Well, the same is certainly true for a prank at church. The observation of the prank can greatly change the consequences. And so when it came time to give the offering, Skeeter got last in line, and he held those pennies between his back and the wall, and he made his way slowly forward. And when it was finally his turn, uh, he did not gently introduce the pennies into the blue can. He held that tube of pennies about 10 inches above the blue can, and he just dropped it. And when those pennies hit that side of the scale, that side of the scale dropped dramatically causing the other side of the scale to rise precipitously. And when the blue can hit the ground, it stopped, and the scale stopped, but the pink can didn't. It kept going, and when it got to the end of the binder's twine, binding into the two-by-four, the binder's twine just ripped. And every eye in that sanctuary watched that pink can flying through the church. And it hit the ceiling, and when it hit the ceiling, it didn't stop. It punched a hole right through the ceiling, and 
everyone was staring at that hole. And then the demons of hell started to pour forth thousands and thousands of bats just roiling. Roiling out of the ceiling. And everyone ran for their lives. Everyone ran for the exits, clutching their souls tightly to their chests. Everyone. But Skeeter and myself, because we knew this was our moment. And we ran straight for the baptismal. And we didn't stop to look. We just put our hands on the side and we vaulted over the edge of the baptismal. And when we had gone just far enough that we could no longer halt our forward progression, when we were now nothing but slaves to Newton's first law, body in motion tends to stay in motion, which is very similar to Skeeter's first law, which is a body being chased by the law tends to stay in motion. But when all we could do is fly a little further forward and fall, we looked down. And we saw that someone, some unknown person, had dyed the water red. And a few minutes later, when we joined the rest of the kids on the front lawn of the church, we were limping and dripping and dyed pink. And we heard a voice behind us that said, boys, 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 when a man does things purely for his own enjoyment and not for the benefit of others or the glory of God, he will be stained <laughs> and tainted that others may know. Thank you very much. There's a lot more of that coming up. We're going to take just a short break, and then we'll be right back with more Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back for more stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. Here's your host, Sam Payne. It's been a great hour so far, a little bit of music, and a lot of good fun from Bill Lepp. And we're not going to make you wait for even more of it. It's all right, you go right ahead. You go right ahead. We're going to bring him back to the stage, ladies and gentlemen, Bill Lepp. Thank you very much. Uh, during college, during summers, during college, I worked at a series of camps, and one of the camps that I worked at was a camp called Camp Horseshoe. It was a YMCA camp, which is just outside of St. George, West Virginia, <laughs> which is just outside of Parsons, if, if that clears it up for you. <laughs> And uh, it was uh, working in this one cabin was myself, my buddy Skeeter, our friend Wally, and then our buddy Uncle Debo. Now, Uncle Debo was not our uncle. In fact, Uncle Debo was a year younger than we were. But everybody in town called the poor kid Uncle Debo for several reasons. One, because Uncle Debo was the last and quite unexpected of 17 children. And when he was born, his parents were tired and they couldn't think of a name. So they thought, we'll just call him the boy 
until something better comes along. And then through the wonders of time and syllabic manipulation, the boy became da boy, which eventually became Debo. And the reason we called him uncle is because as the last of 17 children, he had nieces and nephews who were quite a bit older than he was. So it wasn't uncommon to be walking down Main Street and hear some matronly niece yell out, Uncle Debo, you pull your pants up right now. And I'm going to tell Grandma. So everybody in town just called the poor kid uncle so the four of us skeeter myself wally and uncle debo we worked in this one cabin now these were big cabins you walked in the front door and there was a foyer and benches you could sit down take your boots off hang your jacket up and then on either side of that foyer there was a wing and in each one of those wings there was probably 25 bunk beds and if you walked through the foyer there was another door in the back of the foyer which led into uh, a, another little room that was about half the size of the room that we're standing in now and in that room, that's where myself, Wally Skeeter, and Uncle Debo stayed. So there was a door in the middle of that wall, and then on either side of that door, there was a bunk bed, and Skeeter slept on the bottom bunk over here. I slept on the top bunk. Wally slept on the bottom bunk on this side, and Uncle Debo slept on the top bunk. And then if you pass straight through that room, there was an exterior door so the four of us could come in and out of the cabin without bothering the kids. So one day, Wally cut his finger. And he cut it bad enough that we had to take him over the mountain to the doctors. And they gave him some stitches and put him on painkillers. And when we got back to the cabin, we were helping Wally up the stairs into the back door. Okay, we weren't really helping Wally. <laughs> because Wally was on painkillers. And the steps were uneven. And it was fun to watch Wally try and negotiate those stairs. Well, he fell. And... Uh, <laughs> had just enough sense to know that this hand was damaged, so he put his damaged hand behind his back, and he reached out to stop himself with the other hand, and when he hit, the, the two fingers on this hand, uh, these two fingers, they bent all the way, I know, I know, it's neat to see happen <laughs> to someone else. Uh, because you're like, oh wow, can the human body do that? And then you're like, oh no, not successfully. So, we had to take him back over the mountain. And they put him in a splint and on even more painkillers. And this time we did help him up the stairs because it was almost supper. And we didn't want to miss that. So we helped Wally up the stairs. We got him in his bed. And then Skeet, uh, Uncle Debo, and I took the kids to dinner, did those activities, got the kids in bed, got in beds ourselves. And I don't know how long we'd been asleep when I heard Skeeter on the bunk underneath of me saying, Bill, Bill, wake up, but don't move. Now, I don't know if you've ever been awoken in that fashion. <laughs> but that is a difficult fashion in which to be awoken because you know something horrible is about to happen, so your body fills with adrenaline, and you want to go, wah! But you know if you go, wah, you're going to die. So <laughs> I brought myself slowly to consciousness, and I said, what's the matter? And Skeeter said, there's a skunk in the cabin. And I looked over the edge of the bed, and sure enough, there was a skunk milling around. And Skeeter said, close the door. And I knew what he meant. We had that door that went into the interior part of the cabin, and Skeeter wanted me to close that. We left that door open at night so that we could hear what noises the children were making that we were going to ignore. And 
Skeeter wanted me to close that door because he knew that if that skunk went through that door, it was going to go into one of those wings. One of those kids was going to see it. The kid was going to scream and the skunk was going to go off. But I was thinking to myself, out there is 114-year-old boys who haven't bathed in a week. I thought, how much worse can it smell? You know, I thought... We ought to take that skunk and hang it like an air freshener. <laughs> but then I remembered that we were contractually obligated to look after the goodwill of those children. So I leaned forward and I shut the door with a snick and it didn't seem to bother the skunk. But somewhere in the process, Uncle Debo had awoken. Now, Uncle Debo... Um, he was a farm kid. He was a country boy. Uh, okay, let me try and explain this. Uh, there, there's no better word for it than to say that Uncle Debo was just a little bit stupid, I think is the best way to explain I think what happened, to be more charitable, I think is the last of 17 children. It's just that all of his older siblings had claimed all of the intelligence genes, and there was just nothing left for Uncle Debo. So he's a farm kid, country kid, but he didn't have a lick of sense. So Uncle Debo said, there's a skunk in the cabin, and Skeeter said, yes. And Uncle Debo said, will it bite? <laughs> now see, that's the wrong question. If a bear comes into your cabin, you don't think, oh, does it stink? If a mountain lion comes in, you don't say, oh, am I going to get a tick, right? It's just the wrong question. I wanted to thump him, but I knew that if I did, the skunk would go off. So Uncle Debo said, there's a skunk in the cabin. Will it bite? And Skeeter said, yes, yes, it will bite. And Uncle Debo said, how did it get in here? And as if to answer that question, the screen door went, eh, and a second skunk came in. So now there were two skunks milling around. And Uncle Debo said, if one of them bites me, will the other? And Skeeter said, yes. He said, they're like hornets. And if you make one mad, you make them all mad. And Uncle Debo said, if one of them goes off, will the other? And I was like, what are they, the Borg? Do they have a collective conscience? And Skeeter said, yes, if one of them goes off, they'll both go off. And by this time, I was laughing. But it was that quiet laugh, that silent laugh, like you do when you're in church or at school or, you know, at a funeral. And uh, I could feel Skeeter laughing on that bottom bunk, too. But, you know, we were probably rocking that bed on maybe like a 1.5 on the Richter scale. And there were tears coming out of my e eyes and going into my ears. And finally, Skeeter got a hold of himself. And he said to me as seriously as he could, he said, Bill, did you brush your teeth? And I thought I knew where he was going with this. So I said, no. And Uncle Debo said, I brushed my teeth. Why is that important? And Skeeter said, because skunks are scavengers. They're like bears. And if they smell a scent that they're attracted to, they'll come and investigate. And skunks love toothpaste. And Uncle Devo said, well, I'll be okay because I'm on the top bunk. And Skeeter said, why do you think people call skunks polecats? <laughs> and Uncle Devo inhaled like he never intended to exhale again. Not like he was trying to kill himself, just like he wasn't breathing for the next 70 years. He just sort of went, oh! 
like that. And by now, you know, Skeeter and I, we were almost laughing out loud. I mean, there was no, yeah, we were taunting. I'm not going to deny it. But there was no way we were getting out of this situation alive. Let our tombstone read. They went down taunting. And while that was going on, the screen door went, and a third skunk came in. So now there were three skunks milling around. And Wally, Wally'd been asleep through all of this in his drug-addled state, but Wally... Wally was one of those, he was a perfect camp counselor because he was one of those weird people, one of those sick people who think it's neat to get up early in the morning and watch the sun rise. I have to tell you, I was 24 before I knew the sun did rise because all I'd ever seen it do was set. But not only did he like to get up early, but he woke up happy and he'd wake up, he'd be like, good morning, as he jumped out of bed and he'd start to sing a song about little birdies and happy trees going chirpity chirp, chirp, chirp. So in the midst of all of this, Wally awoke and in his drug addled state, he thought it was morning. And he said, good morning, and he jumped out of bed. And he landed in the center of a triangle of skunks. And he looked down, and with all the innocence of a drunk, he said, oh, Kitty cats. <laughs> and he knelt down, and he reached out, and he started to scratch one of the skunks behind the ears. Well, the skunk didn't know what was happening, but it wasn't entirely unpleasant. So the skunk came closer, and Wally picked him up. And he stood up, and he turned to Uncle Debo. And he said, look, Uncle Debo, a kitty cat. And the skunk crawled off of Wally's hands and onto Uncle Debo's chest. And Uncle Debo sat up, and he screamed. And the skunk bit him. <laughs> And then all three skunks just went off. And Skeeter and I were laying there, choking, gagging, laughing. And we heard a voice from off in the ether that said, boys, 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 when a man does things purely for his own enjoyment, not for the benefit of God or the glory of others, he will be stained and tainted that others may know. Thank you very much, Abbasine. Bill Left, ladies and gentlemen. How about we bring Ian and Anthony back for just a moment. Ian on the bass, Anthony on the piano. Ladies and gentlemen, make them welcome to the stage. We were talking uh, before the show about, Bill and I and others were talking about uh, comparisons between the place where we live and the place where Bill lives. And I, I'm, I'm looking at that swatch of, of, of fabric on Bill's hat. Uh, yeah, yeah. If, if you've ever been to the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, you know about that swatch. They give you one of those, and that's your ticket to get into all of the tents of the National Storytelling Festival to hear all the wonderful storytellers that are there. And, uh, and, and I, frankly, it's that swatch of fabric that made me think of this tune. We're going to do this to wrap us up today, uh, thinking about this season in the place where we live and thinking about this season in the place where Bill lives. Thank you. 
falling leaves drift by my window. The autumn leaves of red and gold. I see your lips, those summer kisses, that sunburned hand I used to hold. Since you went away, the days grow long. And soon I'll hear old winter song But I miss you most of all, my darling When autumn leaves start to fall Thanks for joining us on the app. Yeah. Ian Camp on the bass. Anthony Fan on the keys. It was such a pleasure for us to have Bill Lepp in the studio, entertaining our studio audience with a lot of great stories. Bill began his time with us by telling the story of the princess and the pickup truck, a story that appears in one of a couple of acclaimed picture books authored by Bill. And we want to wrap up the show today by bringing you the other one. This is The King of Little Things, a recording of Bill's performance of the text of that picture book. You can find out more about both The Princess and the Pickup Truck and The King of Little Things by visiting Bill's website, lepstorytelling.com. That's L-E-P-P, storytelling.com. Here's The King of Little Things on the Appleseed. 
Once there was a king. He was the king of little things. He was the king of keys, crumbs, copper coins, and condensation. He was the king of nails, noodles, nods, knots, needles, beetles, and baby rattles. He was the king of pebbles. He was the king of paper dolls, tin soldiers, pin cushions, small kindnesses, pet names, corks, and buttons of all shapes and sizes. He was also the king of the alphabet and of anachronisms. There were other kings, bigger kings, all around the king of little things. They controlled big kingdoms with big castles. Banquets were thrown every Friday for the big kings and for the big kings. The bigger kings had aspirations. The kings of cities hankered to be kings of counties. The kings of counties longed to be kings of countries. And the kings of countries yearned to be kings of continents. The king of little things had a small house and a few friends over on the weekends. The king of little things always remembered the queen's birthday and tried to remember to write his mother once a week. The big kings made their subjects pay for everything, for firewood, for food, for friendship, and for freedom. The king of little things gave anything to anyone who asked politely. He fed the birds, left crumbs on the table for the ants, and planted flowers for the bees. One day, one of the big kings decided to take over the world. He ordered his big generals to raise a big army. The big king raided and routed the kings of all the cities. He besieged and bested the kings of all the counties, and he battled and beat the kings of all the countries. Soon, the big king believed he had conquered every creature on every continent. The big king instructed his tailors to sew him a big, beautiful suit. The suit had many big brass buttons. He then had a splendorous crown crafted for himself, and the crown was covered with big gems. Now, proclaimed the king of big things, I am the biggest and onlyest king. I alone rule the world. A servant raised his hand. The servant said, I beg your pardon, O biggest king of the biggest empire ever created on this big, wide, and humongous world. You are the king of the mountains. You are the king of the seas. You are the king of the whales and the king of the pachyderms. But, my large sire, you have overlooked one small kingdom. What? How? Where? Which kingdom? Who is this king that I have not yet quashed in my quest? asked the big king. My lord, said the servant, bowing low to the floor, you have overlooked his minuscule majesty, the king of little things. Hmm, growled the big king darkly. Overlooked someone, have I? Amass my armies, he said to his generals, waving his big arm in the air. I shall lead the largest army in this big, big world to conquer this king of little things. And so it was that the big king and his army surrounded the humble house of the king of little things. Seeing the big king's army, the king of little things chuckled and called on his small but loyal subjects. He asked his minute friends to invade the big king's camp and do their little things. The little things loved their king. They slipped silently into the big king's camp. When the big king's army awoke in the morning, the soldiers could not attack. They awoke itching. Mosquitoes had bitten the soldiers. Chiggers had crawled under their armor. Athletes' foot fungus had crept into their shoes and between their toes. The cooks found nothing to cook. Weevils had eaten all the bread. Flies were in the fruit. Worms were in the meat. The weapons crews could not fire. Termites had eaten all the cannon's wheels and all the catapults. Spear handles, bows, and arrow shafts lay in great heaps of sawdust all over the ground. So the big king requisitioned steel catapults. He had steel spear shafts crafted. He brought up steel wagons with steel wheels. The king of little things saw all that steel. He shook his head and he smiled. 
The king of little things called on his friends, Rust and Dew. He asked Rust to ride on Dew to infiltrate the big king's camp. Rust and Dew rode noiselessly into the big king's camp just before the dawn. Again, the big king's soldiers awoke to a mess. Their wagons wouldn't budge because of the rust on the wheels. The cannons wouldn't roll because of the rust on the axles. The soldiers' armor was rusted through, and the catapults were about as dangerous as cantaloupes. The big king said angrily to his advisors, I cannot defeat this king through force. He employs the insignificant to create chaos. He controls all the little things. I will have to trick him. I will have to cheat him. In fact, I will lie. After all, a lie, no matter how small, is never a little thing. Invite the king of little things to my headquarters under a flag of truce. Tell him that we shall discuss the situation of the siege. The king of little things received the big king's message. The king of little things did not trust the big king, but he went to see him anyway. The king of little things knew his subjects would come to his aid if need be. As soon as the king of little things entered the big king's headquarters, the buttons on the big king's clothes recognized the king of little things, and they promptly fell to the floor. Then the big king's pants fell down, and so it was that the big king stood in his underwear before the king of little things. Trying to hold up both his pants and his pride, the big king shouted, Take him to my castle and lock that king in the dungeon. But the keys in the jailer's hands recognized the king of little things. They were, after all, little things, and they were loyal to the king of little things. And so the keys refused to unlock the cell door. When the nails in the door saw the king of little things, they jumped out of the wood and bowed before their king. The big king was irate at the news that his own dungeon was loyal to the king of little things. So the big king had the king of little things thrown into a cave. Guards were placed at the entrance of the cave, and the big king ordered that the king of little things would not get any food or any water until he surrendered his kingdom. The king of little things wasn't worried. He sat in the cave. The ants brought him crumbs. The birds brought him seeds. The bees brought him honey. Raindrops dripped through the mountain cracks and into his mouth. For a while, the king of little things was okay. But he missed his queen, and he missed his house. And after a few weeks of sitting in the cave, the king of little things had had enough. He sent word with the bees and the ants and the birds to all his subjects. He respectfully asked all of the little things everywhere to undo themselves. The little things loved their king, and so they responded. All over the world, small things began to happen. Spring sprung. Bolts bolted, ticks and tocks left their clocks, strings unstrung, hangers unhung, chairs folded, tables toppled, easels eased away, quills quivered, quilts quit, cookies crumbled, bread broke, weights lifted, and words twisted. In the big king's castle, the coins rolled out of his coffers, the jewels jumped out of his crown, the fillings fell out of his teeth, his suspenders surrendered, his belt broke, and his pants just would not stay up. Everything everywhere stopped working, and everybody knew that it was the big king's fault because he had imprisoned the king of little things. The people of the world demanded that the king of little things be set free. The big king knew that he was in trouble, and so he put a few big things into a big wagon, including his big, big queen, and he fled. And the people presented the king of little things with the crown. The king of little things required very little of his people. He asked only that they feed the birds, leave crumbs for the ants, plant flowers for the bees, oil hinges regularly, tip generously, and say please and thank you. 
and everybody lived happily ever after, excepting, of course, the big king. He kept losing the buttons on his pants, could never find his keys, spectacles, wallet, razor, toothbrush, slippers, address book, handkerchief, matches, pocket knife, watch, and he just could not keep his pants up. Some say he may have even lost his way. The King of Little Things, here on The Appleseed, told there by its author, Bill Lepp. Bill started out our hour for us today by telling us the story of the princess and the pickup truck before launching into all kinds of storytelling fun. You can find out more about Bill's storytelling, about the princess and the pickup truck, and about the King of Little Things at Bill's website, leppstorytelling.com, L-E-P-P storytelling.com. And of course, you can find us online at BYU Radio slash Appleseed. That's where you'll find an archive of all of the episodes of the show, hundreds of episodes, thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast for something new just about every day here on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. The show is produced by Jeff Simpson, and it's been our pleasure to be with you today. Join us next time, won't you? Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.